0: This event was recorded live at the 2014 Edinburgh International Book Festival.
1: Hello everybody, Uh, I'm Ryan Van Winkle, very pleased to be the chair this afternoon uh, for Alistair Gray. Thanks so much for being here and uh, thanks especially to The List magazine who sponsored this event uh, you do have to mention the sponsors, it's very important, but actually in fact the, the publisher of the list, Robin Hodge, uh, was the marketing manager for Lanark uh, at Gate when it first came out. So it's nice to see that relationship and support continuing. Um, Alistair Gray. I believe and uh, I sincerely hope uh, that he needs no introduction to this audience. Uh, I hope that and believe it. And I haven't written an introduction, so (laughs) (laughs) fingers crossed. Um, But I know loads of people here, and myself included, could talk at length about his importance uh, as a unique and individual voice and artist. Um, I do want to say his his latest book, Of Me and Others. Uh, It's a fascinating look uh, at a life in letters and pictures. And it's a brilliant self-portrait of an engaged thinker committed to understanding how and why we make art. Uh, It's a great book. And Alistair will be able to sign it for you uh, at the book tent right behind you there after the event. Um, First, though, let's give him a big round of applause again. And he's going to read some excerpts from, of me, and others, and then we'll ask some questions and there'll be opportunities for you to ask questions as well. That all sound fine? Good. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, Alistair Gray. Um,
0: um, It's a collection of different things written between 1952 and 2013. Very bitty-peasy. Um, uh, I shall start with, however, an epigraphic verse. Everyone over middle age regrets some loss that ageing brings. My principal regret is this, I've never tackled handy things. Before King Louis lost his head, his hobby was repairing locks. Byron, despite a crippled foot, wrote epics, yet could swim and box. Sir Thomas Brown, Bill Carlos Bill, were medical practitioners. The Reverend Sidney Smith had skill to doctor his parishioners. One soldier wrote wrote great works for tunes. One housewife writes tremendous books. One postman publishes cartoons. One mural painter welds and cooks. One sweeper of streets can etch and paint. One banker played the bagpipes well. One fisherman became a saint who holds the keys of heaven and hell. Ruskin swept stairs and weeded plots. D. H. Lawrence scrubbed the floor. Count Tolstoy emptied chamber pots. Why do I flinch from household chores? (laughs) Melville and Conrad sailed the sea. James Kelman drove an omnibus. Uh, There's another verse missing. Uh, There's a line missing. uh, Melville and Conrad sailed the sea. James Kelman drove an omnibus. Frost's farming was not infamous. No honest toil excuses me. Uh, it's the truth. Um, uh, 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 the the, uh, oh, the soldier who wrote great words for students was Hamish Henderson. The housewife who writes tremendous books is Agnes Owens. Uh, the person who publishes cartoons is Stuart Murray. The mural painter who welds and cooks is Nicol Wheatley. Uh, The banker who played the bagpipes well was the manager of um, the Byers Road Clydesdale branch. Um, (laughs) I forget his name. Uh, um, Um, I'll read. Uh, This is quite accurate. Um, um, uh, um, about a, a teacher I had. Oh, Where is it? Where is it? Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, childhood writing and Mr. Meekle. Um, um, at the age of five, I sat in a room made and furnished by folk I never met, and had never heard, and who had never heard of me. Here in a crowd of nearly forty strangers. I remained six hours a day and five days a week for many years, being ordered about by a much bigger, older stranger who found me no more interesting than the rest. (laughs) Luckily, the prison was well-stocked with pencils, (coughs) and our warder, a woman, wanted us to use them. Uh, One day she asked us what we thought were good things to write poems about. The four or five with opinions on the matter, and I was one, called out suggestions which she wrote down on the blackboard. A fairy, a mushroom, some grass, pine needles, a tiny stone. We thought these things poetic because the verses in our school books mostly dealt with small, innocuous items. The teacher now asked everyone in the class to write their own verses about one or more of these items. With ease, speed, hardly any intelligent thought, I wrote this. <coughs> <coughs> A fairy on a mushroom, sewing with some grass, and a pine tree needle for the time to pass. Soon the grass it withered, the needle broke away. She sat down on a tiny stone and wept for half a day. (laughs) The teacher read this aloud to the class, pointing out that I had not only used every item on the list, I had used them in the order of listing. (laughs) While writing the verses... I'd been excited by my mastery of the materials. I now felt extraordinarily interesting. Most people become writers by degrees. From me, in an instant, all effort to become anything else dropped like a discarded overcoat. I never abandoned verse, but came to spend more time writing prose, as small harmless items interested me less than prehistoric monsters, Roman arenas, volcanoes, cruel queens, and life on other planets. I aimed to write a novel in which all these would be met and dominated by me, a boy from Glasgow. I wanted to get it written and published when I was 12, but failed. Each, each time I wrote some opening sentences, I saw they were the work of a child. The only works I managed to finish were short compositions on subjects set by the teacher. She was not the international audience I wanted, but better than nobody. <laughs> At the age of 12, I entered Whitehill Senior Secondary School. A plain, late 19th-century building of the same height and red sandstone as adjacent tenements, but more menacing. Uh, The playgrounds were walled and fenced like prison exercise yards. The windows, though huge, were disproportionately narrow, with sills deliberately designed to be far above our heads when we sat down. Half of what we studied there impressed me as gloomily as the building. Instead of one teacher, I had eight a week, often six a day. And half of them treated me as an obstinate idiot. They had to treat me as an idiot. Compound interests, signs, cosines, Latin declensions, tables of elements tasted to my mouth like sawdust. Uh, tasted to my mind like sawdust in, my, in the mouth. Those who dished it out expected me to swallow while an, when an almost bodily instinct urged me to vomit. I did neither. My body put on an obedient, hypocritical act while my mind dodged out through imaginary doors. In this, I was like many other schoolboys, perhaps most others. Nearly all of us kept magazines of popular adventure serials under our schoolbooks, and when possible, stuck our faces into the rover, Hotspur, Wizard, and highly-coloured American comics, then new to Britain, in which the proportion of print to pictorial matter was astonishingly small. <laughs> Only the extent of my addi- addiction to fictional worlds was worse than normal, being magnified into mania by inability to enjoy much else. I was too clumsily fearful to enjoy football and mix with girls, though women and brave actions were what I most wanted. Since poems, plays and novels often deal with these, I easily swallowed the fictions urged on us by the teachers of English, though the authors, Chaucer, Shakespeare, Jane Austen, Walter Scott, were far less easily digested than the Rover, etc. <laughs> Mr Mickle was my English teacher, and managed the school magazine. I met him when I was 13. He became my first editor and publisher, and a year or two later, by putting me in charge of the magazine's literary and artistic pages, enabled me to edit and publish myself. There must have been times when he gave me advice and directions, but these were offered so tactfully that I cannot remember them. I was only aware of freedom and opportunity. Quiet courtesy, sympathy and knowledge are chiefly what I recall of him, and a theatricality so mild that few of us saw it as such, though it probably eased his dealings with those inclined to mistake his politeness for weakness. I'll try to describe him more exactly. His his lined triangular face above a tall, thin body, his black academic gown, thin, dark moustache, dark eyebrows and smooth reddish hair give him a pleasantly saturnine look, especially as the cheerfully brushed back hair emphasised two horn-shaped bald patches, one on each side of his brow. While the class worked quietly at a writing exercise, he would sit marking homework at his tall, narrow desk, and sometimes one of his eyebrows would shoot up into a ferociously steep question mark, then sink to a level line again while the other eyebrow shot up. (laughs) This suggested he had read something terrible in the page before him, but was now trying to understand the writer's frame of mind. Such small performances always caused a faint stir of amusement among the few who saw them, a, um, a stir he gave no sign of noticing. Sometimes, wishing to make my own eyebrows act independently, I held out one down with a hand and violently worked the other, <laughs> but, but, uh, but I never managed it. Outside the classroom, Mr. Mickle smoked a meerschaum pipe. He conducted one of the school choirs, which completed in the Glasgow music festivals. His slight theatrical touches had nothing to do with egoism. As he paced up and down the corridors between our desk and talked about literature, he was far more interested in the language of Shakespeare and what Milton learned from it, and what Dryden learned from Milton, and what Pope learned from Dryden than in himself. Not everyone liked Mr Meekle's teaching. He did not stimulate debates about what Shakespeare or Pope said. He simply replied to any questions we raised about these, explained alternative readings, said why he preferred one of them, and went on talking. Nor did he dictate to us glib little phrases which, repeated in an essay, would show an examiner that the student had been driven over the usual hurdles. He let us scribble down what we liked in our English notebooks. This style of teaching seemed to some as dull as I found the table of elements, but it suited me. While he told us with erudition and humour the official story of English literature, I filled notebooks after notebook with doodles, recalling the fictions I had discovered at the local cinema, on my parents' bookshelves, in the local library. I was not ignoring Mr. Meekle. While sketching doors and corridors into the worlds of Walt Disney, Tarzan, Hans Anderson, Edgar Allan Poe, Lewis Carl and H.G. Wells, I was pleased to hear the writers of Hamlet, Paradise Lost, The Rape of the Lock and Little Dorrit had invented worlds which were just as spooky, I was still planning a book containing all I valued in other works, but one of these works was beginning to be Glasgow. I'd begun to think my family, neighbours, friends, the girls I could not get hold of, were as interesting as any people in fiction, almost as interesting as me. But how could I show it? Joyce's portrait of the artist as a young man suggested a way, but I doubted if I could write such a book before I was 17. Meanwhile, Mr Meekle's voice absorbed my whole attention. I remember especially his demonstrations of the rhetorical shifts by which Mark Antony and Julius Caesar changes the mind of the mob. My private talks with Mr. Meikle took place before the class, but out of earshot. short. We could talk quietly, because my head, as I stood beside his desk, was level with his as he sat leaning on it. I remember telling him something about my writing ambitions, and adding that, While I found helpful suggestions in his teaching and in the music, history and art classes, the rest of my schooling was a painful hindrance, a humiliating waste of time for both me and my teachers. Mr Meikle answered that Scottish education education was not designed to produce specialists under the age of 18. (laughs) Uh, Students of science and engineering needed a grounding in English before a Scottish university accepted them. Art students needed a basis of maths... Both had to know Latin, and he thought this wise. Latin was the language of people who had made European culture by combining the religious, the religious books of the Jews with the science and arts of the skeptical Greeks. Great writers in every European language had been inspired by Roman literature. Shakespeare only knew a little Latin, but his plays showed he put the little he knew to very good use. Again, mathematics were also a language, an exact way of describing mental and physical events which created our science and industry. No writer who wished to understand the modern world should ignore it. I answered that Latin and maths were not taught like languages, through which we could discover and say great things. They were taught as ways to pass exams. That was how parents and pupils and most of the teachers viewed them. Whenever I complained about the boring nature of a Latin or mathematical exercise, nobody explained there could be pleasure in it, They said, you can forget all that when you've been through university and got a steady job. (laughs) Mr. Meikle looked thoughtfully across the bent heads of the class before him and after a pause said, he hoped I would be happy in what I wished to do with my life, but most people, when their education stopped, earned their bread by work which gave them very little personal satisfaction, but must be done properly simply because their employers required it and our society depended upon it. School had to prepare the majority for their future, as well as the lucky few. He spoke with a resignation and regret I only fully understood eight or nine years later, when I earned my bread for a while by school teaching. This discussion impressed and disturbed me. Education, schooling, was admired by my parents and praised by the vocal part of Scottish culture as a way to get liberty, independence and a more useful and satisfying life. Since this was my own view also, I had thought the parts of my schooling which felt like slavery were accidents which better organisation would abolish, that the parts which felt like slavery were a deliberate preparation for more serfdom, that our schooling was simultaneously freeing some while preparing the rest to be their tools, had not occurred to me. The book I at last wrote described the adventures of someone a bit like me and a world like that And though not an autobiography, My Hero, My Hero Goes Mad and Commits Suicide at the Age of 22, it contained portraits of people I had known, Mr. Meekle among them. While writing the pages where he appeared, I considered several pseudonyms for him. Strang, Craig, McGurk, McElwhose, Dinwiddie, but the only name which seemed to suit him was Meekle, so at last I called him that. I was 45 when the book got published and did not know if he was still alive, but thought he would be amused and perhaps pleased if he read it. And he was alive and read it and was pleased. He came to my book signing session at Smith's in St Vincent Street and said so. It was wonderful to see him again, as real as ever, despite being a character in my book. Of course, his hair was grey, his scalp much bolder, but my head was greying and balding too. I realised he'd been a fairly young man when I first saw him in White Hill, much younger than I was now. Three years ago I got a note from Mr Meekle "'saying he could not come to the signing session for my latest novel "'as arthritis had confined him to his home. "'He had ordered a copy from the bookshop "'and hoped I would sign it for him "'and either leave it to be collected by Mrs Meekle, "'who was still in good health, or bring it to him myself. "'I phoned and told him I could not bring it "'as I was going away for a month immediately after the signing session, "'but I would inscribe a copy for Mrs Meekle to collect "'and would phone to arrange a visit.' as soon as I returned. He said he looked forward to that. I went away and tried to finish writing a book I had promised to a publisher five years before. I failed, I came home a month later, and did not phone Mr. Meikle. He was now one of many I had broken promises to, felt guilty about, wanted to forget. When forgetting was impossible, I lay in bed remembering work to be finished, debts to be paid, letters to write, phone calls and visits I should make. I ought also to get my false teeth mended, tidy my flat and clean the window facing my door on the communal landing. All these matters seemed urgent, and I often fell asleep during efforts to list them in order of priority. <laughs> Action only seemed possible when I jumped up to fend off an immediate disaster, which Mr Meikle was not. Suddenly I decided to visit him without phoning. It seemed the only way. The sun had set, the street lights shone... I was sure he was not yet abed, so the season must have been late in the year or very early. The close where he lived was unusually busy. A smart woman holding a clipboard came down, and I was pressed to the wall by a bearded man rushing up. He carried on his shoulder what seemed a telescope in a felt sock. I noticed electrical cables on the stairs, and on a landing a stack of the metal tripods used with lighting equipment. None of this surprised me. Filmmaking is as common in Glasgow as in other cities, though I did not think it concerned Mr Meekle, but it did. His front door stood open, and cables snaked through it. The lobby was full of recording people and camera people who seemed waiting for something, and I saw from behind a lady who might have been Mrs Meekle carrying round a tray loaded with mugs of coffee. Clearly a visit at this time will be an interruption. I went back downstairs, regretting I had not phoned first, but glad the world was not neglecting Mr. Meekle. I even felt slightly jealous of him. A while after this abortive visit, I entered a public house, bought a drink and sat beside a friend who was talking to a stranger. The friend said, "'I don't think you two know each other,' and introduced the stranger as a sound technician with the BBC. The stranger stared hard at me and said, "'You may not know me, but I know you.' You arranged for a BBC camera crew to record you talking to your old schoolteacher in his home, and you didn't even turn up. (laughs) I never arranged that, I cried, appalled. I never even discussed the matter, never thought of it. Uh, Then you arranged it when you were drunk. I left that pub and rushed away to visit Mr Meikle at once. I was sure the BBC had made a mistake, then blamed me for it and I was desperate to tell Mr Meekle that he had suffered intrusion and inconvenience through no fault of mine. Again I entered his close and hurried up to his flat, but there was something wrong with the stairs. They grew unexpectedly steep and narrow. There were no landing or doors off them, and in my urgency I never thought of turning back. At last I emerged onto a narrow railed balcony close beneath a skylight. From here I looked down into a deep hall with several balconies round at lower levels, a hall which looked like the interior of Whitehill Senior Secondary School, though the White Hill, I remembered, had been demolished in 1980. But this was definitely the place where Mr. Meekle lived, for looking downward I saw him emerge from a door at the side of the hall and cross the floor toward a main entrance. He did not walk fast, but a careful firmness of step suggested his arthritis had abated a little. He was accompanied by a party of people who, even from this height, I recognised the Scottish writers rather older than me, Norman McKay, Ian Crichton-Smith, Robert Garriach and Sorley MacLean. As they accompanied Mr Meekle out through the main door, I wanted to shout on them to wait for me, but felt too shy. Instead I turned and ran downstairs, found an exit and hurried along the pavement after them, and all the time I was wondering how they had come to know Mr Meekle as well or better than I did. Then I remembered they too had been teachers of English, That explained it. They were Mr. Meekle's colleagues. That was why they knew him. But when I caught up with the group, it had grown bigger. I saw many Glasgow writers I knew. Morgan and Lockhead and Leonard and Kelman and Spence, etc. And from the Western Isles, Black Angus and the Montgomery Sisters, Derek Thompson, Mackay Brown and others I knew slightly or not at all, from the Highlands, Orkneys and Shetlands, from the North Coast and the Eastern Seaboard, Aberdeenshire, Dundee and Fife, from Edinburgh, the Lothians, the Borders, and Galloway back to Ayrshire. "'And all these folk writers!' I cried aloud. "'I was afraid that my own work would be swamped "'by the work of all these other Scottish writers.' (laughs) "'Of course not,' said Archie Hind, who was walking beside me. "'Most of them are readers. "'Readers are just as important as writers and often a lot lonelier. "'Arthur Meekle taught a lot of teachers that they are not alone.' Uh, Sorry, taught a lot of readers that they are not alone. So did others in this mob. Do you mean that writers are teachers too, I asked, more worried than ever. What a daft idea, said Archie, laughing. Writers and teachers are in in different kinds of show business. Of course, some of them show more than others. I awoke, and saw it was a dream, though not entirely. Uh, You'll you'll, you'll (laughs) possibly have noticed the ship... The, the shift from fact to fiction that happens. Um, 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 I'll I'll just read another very much shorter thing, and uh, and 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 then uh, answer any questions. Um, oh, shorter things, of Anthony Burgess. Born in Manchester in 1917, son of a shopkeeper, a newsagent tobacconist, who was also a pub pianist, Burgess was educated as a Catholic, got a second-class degree in English language and literature at a Manchester university. He spent several complicated years of service in the British Army, starting as a nursing orderly in World War II and ending as a teacher with rank of sergeant major in Malaya. After that, he became a teacher of English in what we British called the Middle East, Brunei, then Malaya. He learned the languages of these countries, became an expert linguist. In Shaw's Pygmalion, the film adaptation, the great linguist says of a a more internationally employed linguist, he can learn any language at all in a fortnight, the sure sign of an idiot. (laughs) I disagree. I think one of Burgess's most interesting books is A Mouthful of Ear, in which he briefly but respectfully surveys many Eastern and European languages, including Scots lalans, in an argument that schools should teach the phonetic way of writing words to hear how people in other countries pronounce them. In the late 1950s, he collapsed while teaching in Brunei and was invalided back to Britain with what was diagnosed as an inoperable brain tumour. In roughly 12 months, he wrote to support his widow three novels, the first of 32, contemporary and, real, and realistic, historical but convincing, also satirical futuristic, because he lived for another 30 years, though his first wife died. He, he published many kinds of books, two of them autobiographies. He reviewed books and broadcasts for The Observer, The Guardian and The Listener. The last was a weekly magazine published by the BBC to review its broadcasts and to print the texts of interesting talks latterly most of which were on the third programme. In 1964, Burgess reviewed Under the Helmet, a TV documentary about my poetry and painting directed by my friend Robert Kitts. I remember the article was illustrated with a reproduction of my cow streetscape, which most excited me. Burgess responded to the programme by suggesting my poetry deserved closer attention while doubting if the device of suggesting I was dead was a good idea. Uh, When I met him in 1981, neither of us remembered that indirect encounter. He had been invited to Glasgow by the Scottish Publishers Association to give a talk at the McClellan Galleries, and I was introduced to him at a small meal beforehand because my first novel Lanark had just been published and Burgess had reviewed it, saying I was the first major Scottish novelist since Walter Scott. In the restaurant where we were introduced, his first words were, Congratulations! You don't have an agent, I hope! He seems to me big, full of power, yet harmless because ramshackle, not well-organised. I liked that, as it is how many people see me. (laughs) He was thoroughly English, but not posh, lacking the Oxbridge smooth manner which many folk acquire without having been to English private schools, (laughs) of the kind advertised as public, uh, because only rich families can pay to get their children into them. Anthony Burgess was what was once called a man of letters, Sam Johnson, Goldsmith, Orwell were such. They lived by their writing in a hand-to-mouth way that made writers with secure incomes, mostly academics, think, these people are not in our class. But on that occasion, Burgess and I exchanged no memorable ideas. Several years later, Theatre About Glasgow, a subsidiary of the Glasgow Citizens Theatre, decided to take on tour a stage version Burgess had made of his novel A Clockwork Orange, and commissioned me to paint the scenery. The director told me of a phone conversation with Burgess, who I think then lived in Malta, in which he told Burgess I was busy in the scenery. According to him, this information was followed by some seconds of silence before Burgess roared, Why isn't he writing? (laughs) My writing has never had a greater compliment.
1: Thank thank you, Alistair. Um, just before we get into the conversation, I just want to make sure you're okay. I oh am, yeah, yeah. Good. <laughs> um, Alistair, the one thing I, I, I was really astounded by in, in that first passage was how young you were when you started to conceive of yourself, both as a writer, but also to have the kind of conception of Lanark in your head at that age and then to carry it and work on it for 40 years, how did that feel? Was that like very frustrating to have it inside you for that long?
0: Well, I didn't put the whole thing inside no, me for that long. No, of course not. I know you didn't have
1: an uh, outline uh, of it, but it was there, it's uh, very much formed there.
0: Uh, uh, yeah, Yes, I mean, I mean sheer conceit. Um, uh, um, um, right, uh, you know, Milton saying that he intended to Write a book which the world would not easily let die, (laughs) Uh, would not willingly let die. Uh, And I'm I'm afraid most writers of that kind of conceit, Uh, you know, um, um, uh, as soon as they get a wee bit of praise for something they wrote when they were wee. (laughs) (laughs) And it just stayed with you. Yes. Yeah. And, and uh, but it's very. It does stay with those structures. Yeah.
1: But but it, and it's not only that. It's not only the landmark thing. It's 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 the the conception of place and being in Glasgow. There's a moment in the book where you say. If interior streets and landscapes in Norway circa 1900 provided a great artist with strong subjects, why should not 1950s Scotland? And it surprised me again, how young you were when you were taking up this as a primary concern about be, living and working as an artist in Glasgow?
0: It's quite ordinary um, I mean most most people almost everyone unless they've been humiliated by a bad education take it for granted that the, their parents and the people they know and, and uh, their surroundings are as important as any, anyone else's <laughs> friends and and relatives and parents and surroundings (laughs) it's just uh, there certainly in in Glasgow um, the papers we read, all the books reviews were were in um, the Times Uh, and there were practically no Scottish um, newspaper publications that took any account at all of the Scottish arts and uh, And and all the news you got indicated that history, important matters were happening elsewhere in the world. Um, So uh, um, there was a failure of confidence or nerve uh, in Scotland uh, in the earlier part of the 20th century which hadn't existed during the 19th century when the Encyclopaedia Britannica was still published by Edinburgh University <laughs> which had published the first volume but then of course the Times took it to London and then of course quite naturally the USA took it over <laughs> uh, and, and, and um, oh, uh, sorry I'm um, I'm raving a wee bit but but uh, uh, there, there was uh, a, a sense that uh, It sounded uh, like you needed to give yourself permission to. Well, well it, 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 it's having read portrait of an Ar- artist as a young man, thinking, oh, here here here's somebody using his experience of Dublin when it was part of the British Empire, uh, um, I, you know, to make great art, short stories, a preliminary novel, and a, a, a great epic, Ulysses, and. Uh, Oh, why shouldn't anybody do it wherever they are? Well, why shouldn't I do it here? Uh, and 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 and, uh, and but um, uh, but there's nothing queer about that. It's quite ordinary. I mean, I mean, other writers in other other countries took it take it for granted that they can. And and uh, it was uh, it was just a, a I got the idea at a at a, peri- at a period when. Uh, well, the, it was at Glasgow Art School, and it was assumed, of course, you can only make a living as an artist in Scotland unless you've got a small un, a, <coughs> a small unearned income is handy if you're starting out as an artist. And, uh, and in fact, most of the uh, French Impressionists had one, and post-Impressionists... Uh, Suzanne said, my father was the real genius. He left me a million francs. <laughs> um, 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 uh, Van Gogh was less lucky. Mind you, he was he was supported by his his brother. And only committed suicide when his brother got married and he realized he couldn't keep on drawing money from this man without. Um so, uh, sorry, I'm changing the subject. Um but, but uh, <laughs> Joan Eardley was not rich, but she had a small unearned income that enabled her living in one of the slummier parts of Glasgow initially, and then in a a small fishing fishing village cottage on the east coast, by living very frugally, she was able to paint as she wished. Never got quite the acknowledgement in Scotland she should have had. I don't think there's been a major retrospective exhibition of her work during an Edinburgh Festival, for instance, which I found astonishing.
1: Do you still think artists are dealing with that concern, that, that concern of whether or not to stay or leave, or do you feel like there is more confidence and permission? Because it seems to me that it's changed vastly in, in the intervening. Oh, here, it, it's changed hugely. to do um, with a lot of your work, I think.
0: Um, it, it, it's changed really hugely. Industry of Scottish arts administrators, <laughs> <coughs> and, uh, and of course they need a few artists to <laughs> to take the bare look off them, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, and, and uh, I've been ac- I've been accused of hating the English, and I don't I don't hate anybody, um, but but uh, in pointing out that that uh, uh, the people in important Scottish committees, by which I mean bankers, (laughs) top businessmen, um, that they prefer having English administrators in charge of Scottish arts. Um, uh, That's why they chose an English person to be in charge of Creative Scotland, (laughs) who who said he didn't know much about Scottish culture but was looking forward to learning. (laughs) <laughs> um, uh, 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 um, I, I, I promise you, it's it's the Scots who are to blame for for, for the fact that <laughs> that they actually do distrust and possibly actively dislike quite a lot of <laughs> well, they they don't want to the su- <laughs> the idea of having. Cottage writers and painters in charge of their own institutions impossible it would be as bad as having a, a teachers in charge of the schools <laughs> we can't have that <laughs> we don't have that uh, we it's, it's true we still to a great extent but not as much as it used to be we still have doctors and surgeons to a great extent in charge of hospitals but of course accountants are superior to them and uh, and, uh, and 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 they can always appoint somebody even even a qualified doctor and say we're going to cut down the number of hospitals we're paying you a lot more money to do it get rid of half of them <laughs> oh sorry not as simple as that but uh, Of course, the hospitals are being cut down, local hospitals are, and just as local schools are being shut down, local police stations and law courts are being shut down. Oh, yes. You talk a lot about,
1: in the the book, confidence. I think there's one essay, uh, the, the piece on the five Glasgow artists that you did, where I think the word confidence or courage is mentioned about half a dozen times. Do you think that this comes from a lack of confidence in self, like what you're talking about in terms of Creative Scotland, in terms of... You suggest in that essay that it creates... A kind of Lack of confidence can create kind of parochialism.
0: Yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, uh, um, uh, D.H. Lawrence uh, said that... That all good art is local art. All bad art is provincial. Um, by 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 that he meant uh, provincial art is when people produce art. It may deal with their own locality, but they're aiming it at um, at people outside it or beyond it. And uh, whereas as pa As Patrick Kavanagh in one of his poems about about the, the place he farmed, um, um in, in which there was some boundary dispute uh between neighbors over who owned a piece of a field, and, and, and he said um, Ho- Homer wrote Homer wrote you know his Iliad about a local matter like this <laughs> and um and and um, just as the Bible, any bit of it full of local names in Palestine and bits of the Holy Land that have been adopted by 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 churches got into hymns by cool siloams, shady ill. All very local stuff that has become international just because the folk who wrote it wrote it had faith in themselves and believed that the folk they knew would want to read it and think about it.
1: And that's, an essential, that's the essential thing, I think, that, that that you've been able to do, which is to project that outwards and to see more of that happening is really important.
0: Uh, uh, well, luckily, luckily, I'm not the only one. <laughs> yeah. I'm <laughs> oh, oh, sorry.
1: It's okay? There you uh, go. I was very surprised to learn actually, and uh, maybe everybody knows this and I just didn't, but I didn't realize that the slogan, work as if you live in the early days of a better nation, is often attributed to you.
0: Mm, and it isn't. It's uh, not yours. It, uh, um, uh, Dennis Lee, a Canadian poet, uh, he was here, but uh, I met him here in, in Scotland, some exchange scheme, and it, uh, it was a line in a, a prize poem. Uh, um, a poem he'd written and um, that won the Governor General's award and reading it, um, that sentence hit me in the eye, uh, you know, I'm, th- I'm thinking of course that's what everybody should Has
1: your relationship with that idea changed at all in the last
0: 30, 40 years? No. I don't know. I think, uh, why should it?
1: I don't, I don't know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, neither, neither do I. Uh, um, the only change would come from growing older, less vital, and a bit more stupid. I am um, I'm, 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 I'm certain that is happening. And um, why, dear me, I may end up voting for the union if I carry on like this. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, <laughs> it seems, seems very unlikely. <laughs> would anybody from the audience, we do have some uh, roving mics hanging about, would anybody from the audience like to ask a question? I see a few hands. Uh, we'll take one from this side of the room, just grab whoever you can find. We'll take one from this side next. I see you
0: still black in spirit alistair <laughs> the hair isn't i what intrigues me is we've known each other now for heading for half a century over 40 years but um, and i've known you as a writer i've also known you as an artist but um, the way you've been talking today one senses maybe it's because of this, this situation but uh, one senses the writer is the the dominant person, But uh, why did you go to art school rather than to um, university or wherever else? Uh, well, I, um, my my parents would have liked me to have gone to university, but I hadn't been. I hadn't. I hadn't got my hires in Latin, and you needed Latin to go to Scottish universities then. But I, I was particularly keen to. Um, I mean, I, um, I, w- I wanted the, the chance of going to art school, and at that time the welfare state had just started, and uh, and and it had been dis- and uh, my father hadn't initially known that uh, that a bursary a bursary would be able to support me, and my entrance fees to Glasgow Art School would be would be paid by the state. Uh, uh, and and um, um, anyway, I, I went to the art school wanting to get into the life classes to draw bare naked women, <laughs> uh, and and um, uh, 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 and you needed to show a portfolio of your work to, to show that you weren't simply a peeping tom, uh, and and um, Uh, And uh, the registrar, looking at it suggested that I should really go to art school because he he thought my painting showed a talent that could be developed and he spoke to my dad and pointed out that fees and a bursary would be available and um, so I'm glad to say I went to Glasgow Art School for five years and it was one of the most useful periods of my life. Um, um, I was writing parts of Lanark um, while I was also drawing and painting there um, because, because they were in entang- <coughs> time, they were, they were together in my head uh, you know, and that's how it happened, uh, you know, Angus? Thank you.
1: Uh, let's take a, yeah, there
0: uh, we go. Hi Alistair.
1: Uh You've been a, an eloquent spokesperson for uh, the cause of independence. It's just a very simple question. How do you think the campaign is going and how optimistic do you feel uh, for the vote come
0: September? Um, One of the reasons I'm feeling quite optimistic is that um, I was just reading publicity for for the No campaign. And it, (laughs) uh, it it, um, it was very interesting because it was indicating that there was going to be fuller employment, more investment in, uh, in public business. Several things, I thought, this is not surely on the conservative agenda. <laughs> and then a friend told me that the new no campaign, in all, <coughs> having been criticised for having no positive ideas, is actually pros- promising a greater degree of independence to Scottish Parliament if we vote? No! (laughs) Thinking, wonderful! (laughs) Um, A small step forward on both, well I I want a bigger step forward of course, but this will be the third referendum. At each of the past referendums the vote for Scottish independence has increased. Um, uh, um, uh, I mean the first referendum 1989 um, a majority of Scots voted for a more independent parliament Uh, they didn't get it because the Labour Party decided that people who didn't vote would be counted as having voted against (laughs) so so the independents won won the race by a short nose and therefore lost the race Uh, and and, um, And then when um, Blair did it again before the the present level of devolvement, a much bigger proportion for it, there's certainly going to be a bigger proportion for it, and I I hope it's big enough, really, to to carry. But even if it doesn't, if the present government does carry through its promises to give... um, Um, It's still a step nearer than what I'd finally like to see. What would you like to see? The United States of Federal Britain? A union of British Soviet republics? Um, uh, I don't know. Um, uh, I I don't know how things are going, of course. Just interesting to find out.
1: Do Do you feel it's important that artists have a role in this conversation?
0: It's important that everybody has a role in this conversation. Artists are no more important than laborers tradesmen, skilled and unskilled. Um, um, agreed writers tend to be as loudmouthed as journalists. Well, journalists are writers too. I mean uh, And politicians, yes, even politicians should be allowed to say in this matter. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Sharp, a green tree in and nothing was. And he had to go away like a lot of Scotch writes The "Yes, sir. yes." Um, uh, uh, sorry, Eddie Linden was just saying that uh, one of the the first noted writers in post-war Scotland was uh, Alan Sharp, who uh, um, had had to go away to uh, well, well, went away to London to, <laughs> um, after his first book, and from there to Hollywood. And, uh, but, uh, um, yes, there's more, there, there is more confidence among writers in Scotland now. I'm glad to see. Somebody from this.
1: There's uh, nobody there. That, that, there we go, there's one right up the top. Sorry. Hi.
0: Are you ever reading from one of your books on the stage and think, fuck, why should I wish I
1: changed that? Just for a moment. <laughs>
0: Yes um no um when i when I have difficulty in reading a sentence clearly, I know i haven 't written it properly. Um, on the other hand, when reading just now, my mouth 's a bit dry, and and uh, i 'm getting over a cold, so I apologize for any uh, hesitations.
1: in this in this book you know you go from what nineteen fifty two to the present day was it was it tempting to go back and polish things up because you didn't change much in in the text there, did not, you n-
0: not much no no uh, I'll be back but I won't apologize <laughs> you don't need to yeah
1: uh, uh, so, uh, yeah right right there because she's next to you <laughs>
0: and nationalism really I mean, a lot of what you said earlier was that part of the reason you're yourself is because you started off locally and I was thinking as you spoke and quoted various things, a prophet is rarely recognised in his own land so do you think that because you're much more grounded because you had a solid local upbringing and you started branching out from there but in terms of independence I wonder how many people around this room are not Scottish, but still admire your books. It's an important point, I think. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> there you have
1: it. <laughs> uh, let's get somebody from this side of the room, please.
0: Alistair, yeah. uh, I was really, int- at the moment, just interested in the chapter in your book on Scottish independence where you talk about your appearance here last year. And um, it seemed to me there are kind of two things going on here. There's one in which you're universally applauded and another in which you're universally seen as a problem or someone who still remains a problem or still has to be. And I thought the way you wrote about that and the kind of correspondence you were getting following the press coverage of last year's event, most stimulating. I mean, what does it feel like? to still shock people into saying, I'm still a vital part of this debate and won't be turned into an icon? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't, don't, well, I'm glad I'm I'm not regarded as an icon. Um, They can't move, you know. (laughs) um, 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 uh, it's also important I think not to be a very public figure that may seem cheeky saying this on a platform Uh, um, um, on on the other hand I, I can only get ahead of I can only go on writing and painting things when I forget that there's an audience or might be because um is this in accordance with my usual formula? I don't want to shock people by departing from my usual formula. Anyway.
1: In terms of the book, you, you say you don't talk too much about how silly, petty, or mean you are in in this and therefore it's it's not quite an autobiography yes uh, why did you think it was important to, to call out to, to, to point that out to, to your audience and would you like to tell us how petty mean <laughs> <laughs> <Here> you are
0: <laughs> no I've decided not to tell you <laughs> oh uh, um, there's a thing I would like to point out uh, an error in this book um, um, Uh, My sister has pointed out that uh, in referring to my father and myself, uh, um, he he, uh, called himself an agnostic. He he was not opposed to the Bible, not opposed to religion. His parents had been sincere Christians, congregationalists, and uh, he thought... His attitude to religion was rather um, a decent one. That is, he, re- he he thought that good people would use religion to help them to be good. Nasty people would use the religion to encourage their nastiness. Uh, and uh, but but in fact, um, uh, human virtue or for that matter, nastiness was a thing that could put on any religion it liked to support itself. Uh, therefore, he called himself an agnostic. And uh, I, I, I was interested in all the Bible stories that were told. I did not like reading the Bible because it, I'd always heard it read in official, chanted voices that made it seem official. Is the only way I can put it. And I, I, I hated anything that sounded. You have to learn this. Uh, You know, you have to take this in. Uh, Official. Oh, yes. But the point is that my sister and my mother were churchgoers. Um, My mother, like the Queen, went to the Church of Scotland when living in Scotland, and England went to the Church of England. Um, And um, both um, my sister... Is the same, and um, they both had Bibles. And somewhere in this book, I say there was no Bible in our house. It's amazing how you can find your, you can make discovery or realize how much you've forgotten. <coughs> um, but, um, I must correct that bit. <laughs> um, as I say, my sisters in this audience, and <laughs> and I've I've, I've, um, I've told her all. Next, next, if it comes out again, I'll correct that. Yes. And everybody
1: in the audience, when you go and get the book uh, before Alistair Steins it, just cross that bit out. <laughs> <laughs> Write it in the marginalia. Yeah. Uh, I think we have one minute for a very, very quick question, and then we should move on. And I'll take somebody from the front row there. Yes, wait for a microphone, please. We've just finished school, but um, for our advanced higher English, we studied *Lanark and Poor Things, and um, they definitely helped the class. It sparked debate amongst the class about Scottish independence. Um, What do you think about the fact that young people in schools are reading your books and studying them, (laughs) and that that's helping them form their views about Scottish independence?
0: Um, I'm I'm, I'm a wee bit unsure of it, because I I didn't expect uh, *Lanark* to do so well when it was published. And here, about a year after it came out, it was, I started getting letters from somebody saying, we're going to be examined on your book, Lanark. What's it all about? You know i thinking? You know I'm thinking? Uh, uh, you know, think, um, um, Bernard Shaw refused to allow any of his plays to be printed in school textbooks. He said, if that happens, Children will end up hating me as much as they hate Shakespeare, <laughs> <laughs> and 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 uh, uh, and uh, and therefore um, um, uh, I don't think anybody should read anything except for fun, because you won't learn anything unless you enjoy it, or or at least uh, sorry, that's perhaps too simple, but but uh, I've never been able to learn anything unless I enjoyed it, and and um, and and. And the more I read, the more reading I wanted to do. And, and um, therefore, I, uh, uh, I hope you enjoyed
1: it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Please don't hate him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, Alistair Gray, we're going to go that way. Please hang tight. And we'll go out first.